I'm going to read the text and then pray and we'll jump in. So Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21, actually 21 through 31. The Apostle Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time, but just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we just ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to receive all that you have for us through this word, through your word, Lord, that uh, you would sow these truths into our hearts, that it would bear a lot of fruit, that you would help us as your children to live out our lives in the good of the gospel, or that you would help us to spot legalism in our lives, help us to spot self-righteousness where it is present, where we are Um, seeking to take pride in our own abilities where we find value in things that we can do and things that we don't do, thinking that, Lord, it somehow attributes uh, to our salvation. Lord, help us. Help us to really understand what it means to be free in Jesus Christ and to live in the good of this freedom. And Lord, I just ask that you'd give us all ears to hear and hearts to receive it here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, in my study of this text, I think every commentary I came across was just talking about how this is probably the most difficult section in this letter. And uh, having preached for a while now, what, what I'm aware of now is that every time you go through a book of the Bible, there's just that point where uh, every commentator, every person study is just going to say, this is the most difficult section in, the, in this letter, if not the Bible. And so they all say that. And uh, when it's usually at the very beginning of my study. And so I just know this is going to mean it's going it's to take a little study. It's going to take a little work if these really, really smart guys think that. Um, anyways, uh, also in my study, I came across... Um, Tim Keller's commentary where he he started out and he just made this statement. He said, there's four types of people in this world. And that kind of stuff piques my interest as well. Um, Just sort of people thinking 
people are like this, and they categorize folks, and they put them into these categories, and, and we like this sometimes, or at least I do, and so we, 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 uh, we take tests to figure out what our strengths are. So you, some of you are probably familiar with a strength finder, correct? What's it called? It's uh, Briggs and Myers-Briggs. Anybody familiar with that? Just raise your hand. So we have a few. Anybody f- uh, familiar with the, I think it's called the Enneagram? Yeah, so it's kind of one of those things that just captures people, and it's like, oh, that's really nice. It kind of tells me who I am, or it helps me figure out these types of things. And so, anyway, it's neither here nor there. So Tim Keller did something very similar um, that I find to be really helpful. And one of the reasons I'm going to share this with you is because I think it's helpful for us as a church to have a little bit of self-awareness in regards to how we live under the law and how we rely to the law, or really just to put it in this category that I've been thinking about since we've been in Galatians, how self-righteous are we? And I say that because I think we're all self-righteous at some point in our lives. We, we all want to take a little bit of pride in who we are and what we're able to do and what we bring to God. That somehow then makes us feel better about ourselves because we're capable of doing certain things. Therefore, we start to think that God, therefore, must love us more because we've done these things or we haven't done these things. And so I've been thinking a lot about self-righteousness since we've been in Galatians uh, thinking about my own life, and so I hope you find this helpful, and I'm going to try, not to, I'm going to try to make a few comments along the way. And so here's what he says. There's, there's four types of people in this world. He said the first type of people are law-obeying, law-relying people. Law-obeying, law-relying. And so people who, who really seek to do what God says to do in the law, so they love the rules and they, and they do the rules. And the other side is he says law-relying, and and they rely on the law, meaning they, they trust in the law and their ability to do things to make them acceptable before God. And so he goes on and he says, these people are under the law and are usually very smug, self-righteous and superior. Externally, they are very sure that they're right with God, but deep down, they have a lot of insecurity since no one can truly be assured that they're living up to the standard. This makes them touchy, sensitive to criticism, and discouraged when their prayers aren't answered. These type of people are faithful to attend church and have much in common with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And that's not a good thing for those who are wondering. These people are self-righteous. The second type of people are law-disobeying but law-relying. So these are people who are kind of under the law, but they just don't do it. But they rely on the law to make themselves acceptable before God. And so these people have a religious conscience of strong works righteousness, but they are not living consistently with it. As a result of this, they are more humble and more tolerant of others than the Pharisees above. And so they're not as strict and not as smug, but they're still sort of Pharisees. Some of these people may go to church, but they stay on the periphery because of their low spiritual self-esteem. The third type of people are law-disobeying and not law-relying people. These people are kind of licentious. So it's kind of the opposite of being legalistic. They're they're not going to obey the law, and they're not relying on the law because they just sort of assume God's just good with them. God's grace covers everything in their life. Therefore, they're just always accepted by God. 
said, these are the people who have thrown off the concept of the law of God. They are intellectually secular or relativistic or have a very vague spirituality. They largely choose their own moral standards and then insist that they're meeting them. Such people are usually more happier and more tolerant than either of the above groups. But usually there is a strong liberal self-righteousness. They are earning their own salvation by feeling superior to others. It's just that this is usually a less obvious kind of self-righteousness. And so that one sort of makes me think. Because I think I I can tend, I'm going to get ahead of myself here. I, I can fall into all three of these at different points in my life. But this licentious one, I think, is easy to get to at some points where, where we can just sort of think that we're just all okay and that nothing ever really matters and God's just okay with everything. Therefore, we're sort of just free to do anything. But I love what he said at the end, and this is where it stops to make me think. It's still a form of self-righteousness. It's just less obvious. And I would say it's less obvious because it's more tolerant. You don't really fight with these people. The people that fight with these people are the legalist people, the really self-righteous people, like to really fight with the licentious people because they don't understand that freedom, but they also understand there's probably something wrong here, and we kind of feel it, but we just don't know how to name it. And so uh, that's group number three. But this is the fourth type, and this is the one where we want to be. This is the one we want to live in. He said, these are Christians. I'm sorry. The fourth type of people are law-obeying, not law-relying. So you see the good in the law, seek to obey the law out of gratitude to God. These Christians, uh, who underst- they understand the gospel and they're living in the freedom of it. They obey the law of God out of grateful joy that comes from the knowledge of their sonship and out of the freedom from fear and selfishness that false idols had generated. They are more tolerant than number three, more sympathetic than number one, and more confident than number two. He goes on and he says, but most Christians struggle to live out number four and tend to see the world as a number one, number two, or number three person. But to the degree that they do, they are impoverished spiritually. And so I just share that with you because I think we all fit into these categories at different points in our lives, even at different moments. As I've been studying Galatians and being aware of self-righteousness in my own life and just trying to figure it out, it's, it's just a real danger. It's a danger to us as believers. It's such a danger that, that really Paul has written almost an entire letter trying to help these Galatians understand what legalism is, and really what it means to live in the good of the gospel. And so some of us struggle with legalism. Thinking and living as if we can somehow be good enough for God to like us on our own and even do enough good things or not do enough bad things to earn our salvation or our acceptance with God. Now, it's very rare that somebody or one of us is going to say it like that. I don't know that I've ever come across somebody in our church that would come and say, hey, I have to do this for God to love me. They don't say it like that, but where it shows up, it shows up in a counseling meeting. It shows up in in our parenting. It shows up in a very work-oriented mentality. It shows up in a lot of discouragement. It shows up in a lot of despair. It shows up in a lot of depression. It just shows up and it looks like something, and it lives among us. Self-righteousness is a danger. 
It affects the way we think. It affects the way we live out our lives. It affects the way we parent. It affects the way we disciple others. It affects the look on our face sometimes. It just shows up. It's, it's as Tim Keller would say, it's, it's smug. I would say it's arrogant sometimes. Some of us are spiritually ignorant. That's what he's getting in type number two. Not knowing much about God and what his word says. And so we sort of just make up our own moral values based upon bits and tr- bits and pieces of truth we've heard, but we can't really name where it's at. So we don't really know what it means, but we, we try to live it. Or what we do is we, we begin to adopt somebody else's practices. So we look out there and we say, oh, uh, I really respect that guy right there. I love the way he parents. And so I'm going to parent like that my kids without ever really thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. So we adopt these practices thinking we can just do them and it's going to produce something. And so there's a little bit of spiritual ignorance there where we just don't really know the truth. And so we kind of make up our own truth that kind of sounds like the Bible at times. But again, we're still really just relying on our ability to do things a certain way that we might get these results either from God or in our lives. And it's still a form of self-righteousness. Some of us are just licentious, thinking we can do whatever it is we want to do whenever it is we want to do it and take advantage of God's grace and really make it cheap. And by that, I just mean we, we take for granted the fact that God had to kill his own son, Jesus Christ. To pay the forgiveness for all of our sins. And that's not cheap grace. That, that's meant to affect us in a certain way. And when it, when it really affects us, when God really gives us this saving faith, it really produces something, doesn't it? It produces a changed heart. It doesn't make us perfect, but it provides for us the perfect one who radically transforms our hearts, producing in us this gratitude. And then there are just some of us who really seek to live in the good of the gospel and the freedom of Christ that he's purchased for us through his death and resurrection. We know that sin is real. We take it seriously and we seek to live a life of repentance and faith. And I think that's where the fourth type of person lives. The fourth type of person is not, is not, a, not afraid of sin, is very much aware of sin, but they live in the good of the gospel, understanding your sin's forgiven. I think it's hard to live there. I'm talking from experience, meaning I mean, it takes work in the sense of reminding one another, encouraging one another, reminding ourselves, hiding God's word in our heart, just being reminded that Jesus' body was broken, his blood was poured out so that we would be forgiven. That whatever this sin is at the present has been paid for in full, because the reality is sometimes we live just fighting guilt and shame, don't we? Fighting off this, this tendency to think, I'm such a big loser. Or when we think about other people and their sins, and we think they're just a big loser. They can't get over this. They're worthless. They, they stink in this area. I can't believe they would sin. And that's just a self-righteousness. But a person who lives in this fourth type of living, they understand that Christ had to die for real sin. And so they live a life of repentance and faith personally seeking to see their sin, take it seriously, confess it, and then apply the good news of the gospel to it by reminding themselves it's all forgiven, that there's no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we can approach God with this confidence because we approach him not based on what we have done or didn't do, but based upon who Christ is and what he's done for us. 
And that makes a huge difference when we have that mentality. When we have that mentality, we're living in the good of the gospel and we're experiencing this freedom. And then when people sin against us, we live that same life of repentance and faith. Or in this case, we grant forgiveness quickly, eagerly, because we're aware of how much we've been forgiven. We're aware that God killed his son for sin, not just my sin, but your sin. And so we take sin seriously, but people who live in the good of the gospel, I'd say this, they take sin seriously, but even more importantly, they take the grace of God far more importantly. I'm not trying to minimize sin in any way. We take it seriously. But I think sometimes we slip into self-righteousness because we don't really understand and celebrate and live in the good of God's grace and mercy. It's radical. It's life-changing. And so Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians because they were not law-obeying, not law-relying people. They were living in one, two, and three, but not four. Weren't trusting in the grace of God. They were turning away from the gospel and buying into this self-righteous, legalistic religion. And the Galatians were not unique people. They were people just like you and me who were tempted to turn away from living in the good of the gospel to finding their hope in themselves and their abilities to do certain things that they might be rightly accepted by God. And so in this case, they were adding to the gospel. They were believing in Jesus and then they bought into the Judaizers or the false teachers, false teaching that said, no, you you also have to be circumcised and you have to do these things. You have to live according to this law to then, to then be the people of God. And so Paul's been writing this letter seeking to help them understand that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Our acceptance before God is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So in verse 21, Paul addresses this with them when he asks them the following rhetorical question. He says, tell me. Tell me, you, listen up. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You want to be under the law, but do you hear it? Do you understand what it's actually saying to you? So they had turned away from the gospel to the law with all of its rules and regulation. Instead of relying on Christ, they were trusting in the law, relying on the law to make them right and acceptable to God. And in doing this, Paul was telling them that they were ignorant of the law's purposes to enslave them and show them their need to turn from trusting in themselves to trusting in Jesus Christ. So we're going to learn from this text is this truth. True freedom is a gift that God gives to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, we must rest in God's promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Freedom is found in Christ. He purchased it with his life and his death on the cross. And he's freely given it to everyone who believes in him alone. We're going to look at three points that sort of help us dig into this. And the first one is this. We must rely on God to save us. It's real simple. Not trying to be clever here. It's just we have to rely on God to save us. And I would say this to parents or anybody discipling anybody, anybody else that's anybody in their life, I'd say you have to rely on God to save your kids. You have to rely on God to save your friends. 
You have to rely on God to save your neighbors, just like you have to rely on God to save you. So he says this again, verse 22, he goes on, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So what Paul does here to help us understand that freedom is found in Christ, he takes us all the way back to Genesis where he tells this story about Abraham having two sons. These boys of his were born from two different mothers. Ishmael was born first, and his mother was Hagar. Isaac was born second, some 14 years later, and his mother was actually Abraham's wife, who was Sarah. Both of these boys were born in very different circumstances. And these circumstances are important for us to help us understand what Paul's getting at here when he's, he's sharing this story in regards to us being free. Trying to help us understand that we are children of the free woman, not the slave woman. And so he shares this with us, and he's wanting us to understand that, that God had made a promise to Abraham before he had a son, before he had an heir, that he would provide an heir for Abraham to live in the land that God had promised to Abraham. It's going to get a bit technical, but you'll see where it goes. So it was a great promise. It was an amazing promise. And it was going to take great patience by Abraham and Sarah because they were at a point in their life where they were trying to have an heir. They were doing all that they could that they might have an heir, that they would have a child, that they would have a son, that they could then give all this to. But but God had not given it to them yet. And so God makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah that I'm going to give you an heir. Well, then what happened is it took about a decade and she still had not gotten pregnant. And guess what happened? They started to lose hope. Started to wonder, is God who God really says he is? Can God really accomplish all the things that God says he's going to accomplish? And so they, they, they waited, but they didn't wait long enough. And so then what ends up happening is they start to take things into their own hands. They, they begin to create their own plan. Well, if this isn't going to happen through me and you, meaning Abraham and Sarah, then Sarah comes up with this plan and, and she goes to Abraham and she suggests to Abraham that Abraham take Hagar, who happened to be his maidservant at the time, and that they have an heir together. And so that's exactly what happened. And so then Hagar bears him, Ishmael, this son. And it wasn't until 14 years later, when Abraham was about 100 years old, that he and Sarah had their first child together, Isaac. Okay, So there's a lot of waiting going on. There's a promise that God makes They decide not to trust in God's promise, do what they want to do when they want to do it, and they have Ishmael, who's born of the slave woman, Hagar, but then 14 years later, God gives them a son. Genesis 21, verse 1, goes like this, the Lord visited Sarah, and he said, I'm sorry, as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And so just reading that passage, what what stands out to us is the fact that God did exactly what God said he was going to do. And that's important for us to understand because we forget this. And it does play into what we're going to learn here at the end of this message. Is that we have a faithful God that he made a promise 
to Abraham, and he fulfilled that promise. God did what he said he was going to do. Abraham couldn't wait. Abraham decided to do things on his own, and he stepped outside of what God was was asking him to do, and he, he had his own child with Hagar of the slave woman, and his name was Ishmael. But make no mistake about it, God did exactly what God said he was going to do. And so, what we see is Hagar bore Ishmael, and so Ishmael is the son of the slave woman, but Isaac, on the other hand, was a miracle in many ways. He was born in very unlikely circumstances. Abraham and Sarah were old. Sarah was well past the age of being able to conceive a child, but God can do all things and accomplish his purposes. And so God made it possible for Sarah to have a baby at her age. God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac as an heir. What Paul wants us to see here is that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, one by a slave woman, Hagar, and one by a free woman, Sarah. The one born by the slave woman, Hagar, was born according to the flesh, while the one born of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. So the reason Paul shares this story was to use it as an illustration saying that it could be interpreted allegorically. He said, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Under the old covenant, a person could become part of the people of God by doing things. By getting circumcised and putting themselves under the law and relying on the law. This means that a person could be born into God's people by means of the flesh or by doing certain things or by not doing certain things that associated them with God's people and God's rule. And the key here is to understand it's all done through human effort. All done through human effort. Ishmael was born through human effort. Isaac was born through God's promise. This was exactly the false teachers, the Judaizers, were teaching the Galatians at the time Paul wrote this letter that if they wanted to be the people of God, they had to do these things. And there's a major problem with this type of thinking and living as we seek to relate to God. Todd Wilson, in his commentary, wrote the following. He said, human initiative will only get us human results. Or to put it even more simply, flesh will only beget flesh. Sinful human beings will only reproduce more and more sinful human beings. This is why Paul insists that the old covenant with circumcision and the law isn't the answer for the Galatians. For the old covenant established at Mount Sinai is only uh, bearing children for slavery. The law never saves anyone. The law was never given for this purpose of saving. The law is a guide that shows us who God is. It reveals God's holiness. It reveals our unholiness. Paul's already spent a ton of time talking about this, but but it guides us and it leads us to this place where we say, guess what? I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't be perfect enough. I actually fail a lot. And so the law leads us to this place where it's meant to show us Or help us see Jesus Christ. Anyone who thinks that they can take things into their own hands and somehow be good enough or not be bad enough 
by obeying God perfectly so that God would somehow accept them and give them eternal life is fooled. We're fooled if we think we can live that way before God. That's not the way it works. No one can save themselves through their obedience to God. No one is perfect in this way, and God demands perfection. True freedom only comes to us through God and his ability to save us. So what we see is salvation is a gift from God, just like Isaac was a gift from God to Sarah and Abraham. It's a gift that he freely gives to us when we receive Christ by faith alone. Todd Wilson goes on and he says this, we preserve our spiritual freedom when we rely upon God's promises, not on our own ingenuity, resourcefulness, or power. In fact, the extent to which we take matters into our own hands is the extent to which we forfeit our freedom in Christ. On the other hand, the extent to which we trust in God's promises and entrust ourselves into his hands is the extent to which we will walk in freedom. This takes a lot of faith. Self-righteous people like to control things. Just the way we work. We can't wait upon the Lord to do what the Lord wants to do. Therefore, we get in there and we get our hands dirty and we make things happen. When we live in the good of the gospel, what the Lord is trying to teach us here is to trust him, to wait upon him, to trust that he's at work, to trust that he will accomplish his good purposes. When we stop trusting in Jesus to save us, our kids or our friends, and start trying to make things happen on our own, what happens is we move away from the gospel and ultimately enslave ourselves. And I would say at the same time, we teach those that we're seeking to train and reach out to to be slaves as well. See, if we major on the law and rules and minor in the gospel, we will end up being self-righteous people. If we major on the law, and I'm not saying the law is bad. The law has a good purpose. But if we major on the law and we minor on the gospel, what ends up happening is we become self-righteous slaves. And so I think what Paul would say here is major on the gospel. Major on the gospel. Lead with the gospel. Use the law. The law has a purpose. But don't just stay with the law. Major on the gospel. Share the good news. It's the good news that frees us. And this leads us to our second point. We must rejoice in God's power. Verse 25, he says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And so Paul here quotes the prophet Isaiah as he's prophesying to the Israelites who are in exile. Isaiah promised them that the Lord would one day deliver them. A day was coming when they would be free and fruitful. And what Paul is saying is this day has come. With the coming of Christ, this day has come and we, in some ways, represent that fruitfulness where where Christ died, was raised from the dead, and all of a sudden the church was born. And all of a sudden people are getting saved. And so what we see is we're called to rejoice in this. We rejoice in God's power 
to do what he said he was going to do. And we rejoice in his power to save people. And we look around and say, well, what do you mean? I say, look around. Look at your own life. The gospel actually is powerful. It actually saves people. It actually transforms people. It actually gives hope. It gives real hope. It gives us eternal hope. Because it's not us that we're hoping in. I'm not hoping in you, and you shouldn't be hoping in in somebody else, but we hope in God, and we hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Point number three. This is where it kind of gets pretty practical for us. Point number three is just this. We must get rid of anything that would enslave us. It says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're not a slave. It's like this subtle correction. If you're a Christian, what are you saying? You're not, you're not a slave. You're free. You're a child of promise. But just as, that, just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So as you can imagine, Ishmael and Isaac kind of growing up. Ishmael's the older brother. God promised them an heir. Isaac's the heir. But what are we going to do with this older brother, Ishmael, who's hanging out? And he sees this little brother, Isaac. Well, if you go back and you just kind of read, Ishmael and Isaac don't really get along. Why would they? Firstborn of a slave woman. Kind of chaotic and confusing circumstance. But it has some rights. And so he's mocking Isaac. And so then Sarah comes to Abraham and just basically says, we got to get rid of this guy. Can't be here. He's not an heir. He doesn't quite say it like that. I'm kind of ad-libbing a little bit. But, But Paul writes what she says. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And God was gracious to Hagar and Ishmael. You can go back and read the story. But, but it was Isaac who was the heir. But Ishmael was pers- persecuting Isaac. And so the, the, the remedy for it was get rid of the one who's persecuting. Get rid of the one who's hindering. Todd Wilson goes on and he says, This verse tells us what church history confirms. There's always been animosity between the children of the flesh and the children of the spirit. For the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other, whether in our own lives or in the life of the church or in the life of our community or country. Sometimes this animosity expresses itself in social pressures. At other times, it gets hostile and even violent. If the Galatians were going to cling to the gospel, if they were going to live in the good of the gospel, Paul told him a lot of things, but one of the things he tells him right here is you need to get rid of the false teachers. You you need to kick them out of the church. You, You need to stop giving them a place of influence in your life because they're teaching you lies. And they're actually leading you away from Jesus Christ. And so Paul's in a sort of nice way, but I don't know if it's really that nice, but it's kind. He's just saying, get rid of them. Why do you continue to let these false teachers lead you astray? So there's a warning here. There's a warning to us where we see this in here. Do 
Don't, don't mess around with things that lead you away from Jesus Christ. Serious business. And he's talking about self-righteous teachers teaching people to be self-righteous. He's not just talking about just other sin and dangerous things like that. He's really talking about get rid of the Pharisees. So it's kind of an interesting warning because a lot of times we think about this, and even in my notes here, I would say something like this. We need to remove anything that doesn't lead us to a greater dependence and understanding of Jesus Christ. And I go on and I say, the Apostle John calls for us in, this, in his letter, 1 John, not to love the world or the things of this world, which is true, right? So the things of this world will lead us away, correct? You're probably wondering, where is he going with this? Because I'm changing my message right now. Okay? It's true. Do not love the world or the things of this world. It will lead you away. It, it will pull you into those things. But that's not really what he's talking about here. He's talking about self-righteous Pharisees. This is where I love Galatians. It's, it's, it just makes us think. And I think we have to have these conversations as, as men and women who love Jesus Christ, as moms and dads in the way in which we respond to our kids. And it would be this. Are we self-righteous? Are we teaching a gospel to our kids that leads them to understanding what it means to be free in Christ? Or are we laying a burden on them that they are not able going to be able to bear? And so I think it takes some wisdom, but I think, I think we have to have conversations about this because Paul is saying, get rid of self-righteousness. Get rid of legalistic teaching. Don't entertain it. Don't lead with it. And again, I'm not saying the law is important. Law serves its purpose, but if we don't ever share the gospel with one another, if we don't live in the good news of the gospel, if we're not eager to forgive and teach our kids and those around us about forgiveness and what it means to be in Christ, we're going to tend to be self-righteous. We're going to be smug. We're going to lift our noses. We're going to say things, I can't believe somebody would do that. And we find ourselves doing that more than we like celebrating the fact that somebody's forgiven. Self-righteous people also can't see just little evidences of grace in people's lives. They don't celebrate growth. They almost kind of look towards or forward to failure in some way. And I would just say there's a warning here. We've got to get rid of anything that would cause us to be self-righteous. And on the other side of that, I would say we need to give ourselves to studying the gospel. Give ourselves to understanding the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. I'm going to end with this. I'm kind of a sneak peek to the next time we get into Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 1. Here's his conclusion of all this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then he goes on and he just says this. Stand firm, therefore, in this freedom and do not ever again submit yourselves to the yoke of slavery. Church, we have a great God who has been gracious to us. He has so loved us that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Pay the penalty for all of our sins. Let us be amazed at this grace. Let us live in the good of this grace. Let's celebrate it. Amen? Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together before your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to celebrate the gospel every chance we get. Lord, that we would never move on. Never move on or 